Oh, Domino's. I love it. And dessert. <laughs> Dairy Queen. I love and lizards. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right. You're all so good. You're going to fatten me up. All right. Thank you. I love the dinner and dessert combination. I'm going to give you to Sheila because, you know, I don't get any money. She maintains control. She's under control. She maintains control. Yeah, she maintains control of all things at our house, and I'm in fear of her, so I give her all the things like that. But thank you so much. I truly appreciate the recognition throughout the month. I don't deserve it, but thank you so much for all that you, you do and for just having a great church family here. One thing I noticed last week is that Sheila's boss, Danny, came to service last week. He goes to a different church regularly, and his church wasn't meeting last week, so he came here. And he told Sheila Monday morning how much he felt welcomed and loved. And that's something we do here at Crossroads. We just, anybody that comes, we get a chance to love on them and just be with them. And we do such a great job of that here. And you've made me feel loved from the first day. And I greatly appreciate that so much. Love you all so much. All right, well, today we're going to end the series with Elijah. This is our fifth and final week pertaining to Elijah. We've named it Trusting God. And we've seen how he's been continually trusting God in all things. But today, as we moved into our final message, we're going to leave the book of 1 Kings, where it primarily tells about Elijah, and it enters the book called 2 Kings. Now, the Hebrew Bible really just had kings. It wasn't 1 and 2 Kings, so it's not a transition if you happen to be here this morning for the Hebrew Bible. But we don't have the Hebrew Bible, most of us don't, so we transition into 2 Kings, and we're going to be into the first chapter as we have basically Elijah's final mission. In the text we're going to learn today, although don't tell us, it's been about 10 years since the last time we've heard about Elijah, and a lot has happened. We learned today that the person, the king, during the time of Elijah initially when we met him in 1 Kings 17, remember that king was Ahab. Well, Ahab has passed on now. He partnered with Jehoshaphat in a battle against Ramoth Gilead, and he died during the battle. So as a result of Ahab's death, his son, Ahaziah, has become the king. And we're going to see from the text that Ahaziah, well, Elijah's commissioned to go to Ahaziah like he was with Elijah because Ahaziah is not much different than his father. We're going to find that he has the same equal evil tendencies that his father did. We'll get into more in depth in a moment when we have a reading, but Ahaziah is now the king, and Elijah's final mission, he's going to confront and be in front of, eventually, of Ahaziah. We're going to read that in just a moment, but one more thing before we finish our series with Elijah, and we don't get into today, but it's worthy to mention now before we do the reading, is that although we're in the first chapter, chapter 2 actually ends any discussion, any mentioning, for the most part, of Elijah. Elijah in chapter 2, if you know about Elijah and the prophets, you know that, well, he doesn't die. He's taken up in a whirlwind, and all that is actually talked about in the second chapter. You know, remember, his name means the Lord is God, and he's been very faithful to God. And because of that, I mean, he's rewarded with, well, just taken up to heaven, rather than actually having the physical death that we'd have had and the people we know and will have. So let's talk about 2 Kings chapter 2. Maybe you can read that later, how he's taken up in the whirlwind. He has Elisha with him, who Elisha is going to be his successor and will continue the ministry that Elijah started. But that's just a note worth considering about Elijah, which brings him to the finale. 
But let us look at his last mission today. It's in Second Kings chapter 1. We're going to read the entire chapter. Stand with me this morning as we prepare for the reading of the word. Again, Second Kings chapter 1. Let us look and find out what happens with Elijah, what will be his final mission before he's taken up in the whirlwind and leaves his ministry to Elisha, which happens again in the second chapter. Second Kings chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Verse 2. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king and said to them, the king said to them, why have you returned? And they said to them, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Ahaziah the king said to them, well, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? Well, they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And the king said, oh, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Well, then the king sent to him, Elijah, a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Well, then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Well, again, the king sent a captain of the third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, Please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Well, then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he rose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Because you have sent messengers to inquire Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So verse 17 says he, so he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because 
Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did are not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Father, Lord, we come to you today having read your text of what was basically Elijah's final mission. And we pray, Lord, as we look over this text and begin to dissect it and examine it, Lord, in the words to follow, that we will see how this text, unusual as it may seem to be, can be applied to our lives. Because all of your word, Lord, can be applied to our lives. So now we ask the Spirit to lead and we open our hearts to see how this story, how Elijah's final mission can be applied to us and how we can receive your word and leave here today in a sense being revived, but also, Lord, having clear direction of what you have for us to do and what we shall change to give glory to you. Well, thank you then for what shall happen here today, for what we shall learn and how we can apply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, first of all, it's worth noting as we get into the story now of Ahaziah, which is again Ahab's son, that he's not unlike his father. I mean, we can say then that the apple has not fell far from the tree, right? I mean, it seems you can discern pretty quickly in this text in 2 Kings chapter 1 that the evil in the sight of the Lord had provoked, been provoked by the servant of Baal, much like it was of his father. Uh, uh, I mean, that's what's happening. As we see anything happening to Ahaziah, we need to quickly, very quickly see that he's just like his father which is initially then why Elijah gets instructions to go confront him. He goes to the messengers first, but eventually he lands in front of Ahaziah and tells him what the word of the Lord told him to say to him about his impending death. But we need to go back to the previous chapter, or actually the previous book, and see that at the end of chapter 22, some things it tells about Ahaziah, about how he's like his father. I mean, we see that, but let's just make sure we understand it. In Verse 51 of the previous chapter, the end of 1 Kings, is that Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. Yeah, he only got two years because we know he died. But verse 52, key upon that for just a moment, because it tells us now the extent of what's happening in Ahaziah's time of being a king. He said he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother. I mean, she was Jezebel. There was Ahab and Jezebel. Neither one of them set a good example for the kids. In the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Clearly, verse 53, see, he served Baal, just like his father did. He worshipped him, provoked the Lord, the God of Israel to anger in every way that his father had done. So notice, he is just like, he's a spitting image of dad. And he's no better than mom or dad. And it's a shame to be able to see this, that Ahaziah is just like his father Ahab. Because when you, when you look at the text and quickly see that Ahaziah is just like dad and even like mom, Ahab and Jezebel, it, it just actually presents a very quick application. Now, this is not the main part of the story, the main point yet to come, but it just quickly provides an application and maybe a question and certain observation. I mean, the question we need to ask ourselves as we think about what's happening here of how Ahaziah is just like Ahab, we need to ask ourselves as adults, are you setting a good example for your children and or your grandchildren? 
Again, this is not the main point of the text. But nonetheless, it's a question worth asking as we see clearly how Ahaziah is just like his father. And we need to ask ourselves that because children are watching you. Your children are watching you especially. But a lot of the children are watching you and in most cases will duplicate the actions of yourself and their parents. Now, having said that, I observe and look at my children, I, 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 I see that they're not always choosing the same career, the same vocation which I have. But in many instances, they do. But regardless of what vocation they have and career they choose, they seemingly always pick up our habits and their characteristics. I mean, to say it another way, it's likely they will do the things you do. Which is certainly the case, we go back to the text, it's certainly the case of Ahaziah. So we see proof that children a lot of times do exactly what their parents do. A lot of times they do exactly what their parents do. Their parents have set an example for them, or he set a bad example for them, which is the case here of Ahaziah. He is just like his father. His father worshipped Baal, did evil inside the Lord, and then now his son, Ahaziah, is following directly in his footsteps. Again, it's not the main point of the text today, but it's something to keep in mind as you leave your children or grandchildren. But getting back to the text, then notice that as we begin to dissect Ahaziah in verse 2, as you go back to the text and look there at verse 2, he's had an apparent nasty fall, which must have resulted in some sort of serious injury. doesn't give all the specifics. It says he fell through the lattice in the chamber and he lay sick. But as it happened to him, and we know about who he is a little bit now, about who he wants to serve and to be like his father, notice then who he instructs his messengers to call upon. As he lay sick, as he lay ill, he calls upon Beelzebub, the god, the little g god of Ekron. Now, a lot of us may not know anything about Beelzebub, so let's take a time out and learn a little bit about who this Beelzebub is? Because, first of all, it says Beelzebub, god of Ekron. Well, Ekron is simply a Philistine city located about 40 miles from the location in which this is happening. And this is then where he sent his messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the little g-god. So they got to travel some distance, first of all, to get there. But then secondly, just what is Beelzebub? Well, it happens to be one of the Many local male fertility gods that bore some form of the name of Baal. Now, we talked about when we first met Elijah and we seen how he was going to confront Ahab and Ahab served Baal, that Baal actually meant the meaning of the word Lord. That's what it simply means. The word Baal simply means Lord. But we can also see here then that we have Beelzebub, meaning that well, it's just meaning the Lord of the flies. That, so this is who he's going to inquire of. A Philistine city actually calls it maybe, it was not Beelzebub initially in the original manuscripts, maybe it's Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul actually means exalting Lord. And Beelzebul was actually credited with healing powers. So notice then, this is who Ahaziah is sending his messengers to. 
He's looking for some sort of prophetic word of encouragement from the fall he had. He told the servants to go to Beelzebub or Beelzebul and possibly with healing powers to be able to find out if he could live. So basically his failure, he has an absolute failure here. And his failure is to inquire of the almighty powerful God, Yahweh, who is indeed the God of Israel. So it reveals in the depth of his apostasy of how far he's gone to be like his father, to worship this pagan, worthless idol and God. So rather than inquire about to God about his health and his future, he sends his messengers to some pagan god to inquire about his health. Now, should we be surprised by his actions? No, we should not be in any way surprised upon who he calls upon to find out if he's going to live or die. He calls upon the one he worships. But, of course, Baal can do nothing. Baal's the bub, Baal's the bull, Baal, whatever you want to slice it, they can do nothing. Which then provides a quick application for us in a secondary way. Because we find out that this is where he's going to to provide some help or look for some encouragement. So we need to ask ourselves then, well, who, when we have some sickness, when we have health concerns or anything for that matter that happens in our life, who do we call on in this time of hurting and sickness and in need? I mean, who do we reach out to? Who do we reach out to to help us be pulled through the situation and the circumstances? Or we could ask it this way, who do we turn to when we enter the valley? Because one of the most popular verses to help us through situations, often read at funerals, is Psalm 23. And maybe especially verse 4, which says, Yea, though I walk through the valley shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I mean, it reminds us, when we see that verse, when we hear that verse, it just reminds us on the one who can truly help. It's none other than God, the Lord God. Now, does that mean that we do not call upon family and friends or the pastor when we have some sort of illness or sickness? Do we not call upon them who can lend an ear and pray for us when we're ill? Do we not call upon them? No, that means we don't call upon them. I mean, it's common to reach out to family and friends, your pastor, whoever, to help you through a time of sickness or illness or some sort of financial instability. These kind of things happen, certainly through a stress situation in life. You call upon those who can help you through it. I mean, it's brothers and sisters. We talk about how we have a great family here. And it's right to call upon our family here to help us through a situation. But it's also right that we call upon God. To help us through it. Because if anyone's going to carry us through the valley, bring us out of the pit, it's going to be God. Family and friends do all they can to help you through it. But ultimately, God is the one that brings you and carries you out. And it reminds us then that we must recognize that God is the source. I mean, he is the, the one to turn to for comfort and healing and strength. We call out to God for one another in need. Every time we're together, we kind of review some names on the prayer list. We incorporate during our little welcome time. 
the prayer list is pretty extensive. It's one of the longer ones I've had at any particular church, but there's just so many people in need. And at the same time, to recognize how we call out to God to help all these people in need, and in the same time, we see how, well, he's answered. I mean, certainly he's answered not always the way we would like it, but he's answered. And we have a lot of testimonies in here this morning to solidify the fact that God is there when we need him the most. We just look around and you can see people who have just come through situations. I mean, Tom, we didn't know he would make it out of Florida. And, and we rallied together. We lifted him up to God and he answered. We have Nora, who's not here this morning, but she has the cancer. Winita has cancer. I mean, a lot of people in here in our prayer list has cancer. We got Josh, who's still suffering, Claudette's son. I mean, every time we get a chance, we just want to pray for the people who are in need. And we don't pray to some make-believe God of Ekron named Beelzebub. We pray to the almighty God, the powerful one, who could truly help us. And, and we, we know we, we pray to God because we know in Him we can find a refuge and strength and comfort in the healing. You say healing, yeah, we have healing from God. When we call upon God, we can receive the healing. Now, does that mean He answers a prayer every time the way we want it? No. He, I prayed fervently for Ray to get through the illness that she was having. And it didn't work out in the way I hoped, the way I liked. None of us would want to see Ray here today. But it doesn't mean God didn't answer the prayer and that Ray wasn't healed. She wasn't healed here with us. Amen. She's healed. So he doesn't always answer in the way we want, but he always answers the prayer and we call upon him because he is the one to turn to. And Ahaziah does nothing like that. You go back to the text, we see he, he clearly calls upon the wrong God, the little G God. He calls out to Baal. But, but it's not surprising because it's the same thing he found his parents doing. Mom and dad, Ahab and Jezebel, is exactly what they would have done. So as a result, then we find in the text God sending his prophet Elijah to the messengers of Ahaziah to confront him. Now, naturally, as we see Ahaziah being told by the messengers, and now eventually he'll meet Elijah face to face, like his father had once upon a time, it's not going to be the most glorious message for Ahaziah to hear. But look at the text again as we go back to dissect a little further before we do any more application. Look in verses 3 and 4. Because Elijah was clearly told, Arise, go meet the messengers of the king of Samaria. And, and it, God tells them what to say. Is it because there's no God in Israel going to fire Beelzebub? And he tells them exactly what's going to happen. You shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up. Your, your, your master, he's talking to the servants, Ahaziah will surely die. So, I mean, essentially, Elijah then goes before the messengers and asks them, do you not think that, that there's a God in Israel? I mean, how do you not know? Do you think there's not a God in Israel? Maybe in your ignorance and your unbelief, you just don't know, so you call upon Beelzebub? And because of this, because of the way you honor your little G God, Baal, your master, Ahaziah, it's just not going to get well. He shall die. That's what the message you received from Elijah. Now, common sense tells us 
that's not a message going to be pleasing to his ear. The king is certainly not expecting to hear that and doesn't want to hear that. If I'm a messenger, I wouldn't want to go back to the king and say, look, we met this guy and we talked about you and he knew you. And he said, you're not going to get well, you're going to die. But in verses 7 and 8, it's what they have to tell the king. And it's apparent then that the king kind of knows Elijah. In verse 7, as they go back to tell them what Elijah had said, verse 7, the king said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? Well, notice they answered him. They didn't tell him his name. I don't know if they knew the name, but we're going to find out certainly that Ahaziah did. They just said he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. So notice in verse 8 at the end, I mean, Ahaziah knows immediately who it is. I mean, he's probably heard about it from his dad. He said, oh, what's Elijah the, Hish- the Tishbite? So he knew precisely who this man was, which means if you go back and think about it, he knew he knew he should call upon the God of Israel. He ignored it. He wanted his little G-God to be called upon. I mean, he probably heard stories from his father about things that happened to him, and he knew then of Elijah. And he knew then there must be a God of Israel, but he ignored it all. He went to his little G-God anyway. But notice again how Ahaziah and how the servants described him in verse 8. They describe him this way. Now think about it. Is this the way someone's going to describe you? They describe Elijah to the king. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. Is that how someone would describe you? I don't think he might have described us that way. But you know, people do describe us in certain ways as hairy or balding, maybe with glasses, maybe short or tall, Lean, maybe skinny, stocky, maybe blonde. Maybe they wear the pants up to the chest like older men do. I mean, they describe you in some way. I mean, so (laughs) I'm sorry I didn't mean to offend anyone. But it's often, would you take a moment to recognize how people must be describing us? And they generally describe us with outward physical characteristics of what they can see. And at times, the outward physical characteristics truly fail to describe us properly. Or they describe us based upon certain flaws they see on our exterior. Okay? But here's the point I'm trying to make. Aren't we blessed that God doesn't describe us in such a way and just accepts us in any way we look on the outside? We're truly blessed in that way. That he just accepts us as we are. And and whatever faults we have, whatever flaws we look like on the exterior, on the shell of this body, I mean, God just accepts us. People may describe us and think, well, that dude's ugly, or that that girl's pretty, whatever. But God just sees all the wonderful, beautiful things about us. And it's good to know that we're blessed that he does, because if, if God looked upon her outward appearance, honestly, I'm just saying this, Many of us would most likely fail to receive the blessing of goodness. I would fail to recognize if he looked upon this and said, well, I'm going to base curse goodness and blessing upon the way he looks. I would fail miserably. I mean, somehow Sheila got it. So Sheila must have a really bad sin in her life, all right? But 
he looks on the outward side of us and he looks past that. And we're blessed that he does because I think of Isaiah 64, 6, which refers to all of us as like filthy rags, is that we have all become like one who is unclean in all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And that's the way we really are. But as we are dirty garments or filthy rags, we're fortunate that God looks upon us and accepts us. He takes us as we are. All we need to do is come to him and accept Jesus as Lord. And God just welcomes us in his arms and begins to love on us even more than he already loved us. So then while the world may reject us, God will accept you because he loves you as you are. You don't have to do anything fancy for God. You just have to accept his son. I mean, you don't have to go get any plastic surgeries, get any corrected body parts. You don't have to do anything like that. There's no need for a fancy car. I mean, a Dodge Ram pickup truck will be just fine for God, okay? You ain't got to have the fancy purses from Bear Bradley or Michael Kors or Louis Vuitton. You ain't got to have all that fancy stuff. God's not impressed with those things. He's only impressed with your heart. I mean, a pair of jeans from Rural King will be just fine for God. He accepts you as you are if you accept his son. Jesus Christ is the key. And if you accept Jesus Christ and God knows your heart, he accepts you as you are. And it's a good thing that he does. As you make the observation application, let's observe something else before we go back to the text. Look again at verse 8. I mentioned it, and let's go back one more time. It describes Elijah this way. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Now, as I think about Elijah and the way he's described, there's someone else that comes to mind immediately who described very similar in Mark chapter 1, verse 6. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Who are we talking about? John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, the one who would come before Jesus Christ. Now, sadly, part of our Jewish brothers and sisters are still looking for Elijah. But Elijah has come. He's come as John the Baptist. The Messiah is here. Amen? The Messiah is here. And we're blessed to receive him. And blessed also he would accept us as we are. Now, that's a good ending to the message, but we're not done yet. There's still more. you got bonus time. Go back to verse 9. But something interesting now begins to occur. It's my favorite part of the story, actually, because in verse 9, the king sends a captain of 50. The king said to, have to, uh, the king sent to him a captain of 50. It's to Elijah. Verse 9. He, the, king, the, and the captain went up to Elijah. Elijah's where? He's sitting at the top of a hill. And the king, the, the man, the captain said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then what happens, of course, fire came down from heaven. And the first time it happened with Elijah, it happened with the Baal prophets as well, back in chapter 18. And now it consumed the captain and his 50. Now, I'm going to tell you, as you're reading through the story, we've already made a few different points, but now all of a sudden the story begins to change a little bit, and this seems rather odd, that a, a captain and 50 men 
come before Elijah and declare, come down, and all of a sudden they're just consumed by fire. It seems odd. So where does part come from in the story? But it just happened once. It happens again in verses 11 and 12. And then it happens a third time in verses 13 and 14. So you're thinking, okay, this is a strange turn in the story. It's Elijah's final mission. So what is all this about? That's what we need to ask. Here's the answer. It says, to many readers, this story seems like an unnecessarily cruel demonstration of God's power. And that might be how many people perceive it. But it's however, the issues at stake justified severe action. Ahaziah showed complete contempt for Elijah and the God he represented by sending a band of soldiers to arrest a prophet like an outlaw and drag him before the throne. That's essentially what's happening. I mean, they're commanding him to come down. So it's all about a power play, if you will. It's all a matter of trying to show who is in charge. Now, no doubt, Ahaziah, as a king, all kings seem to do this, even presidents, believe he is in charge. But God demonstrates to him that only God, only the true I am Yahweh is in charge, and he's the one in control. As I shield told the children with, this, with the seasons, God is in control. It's all about a power play. It's all about trying to find out who is in control. So consider the commentary one more time. He said, Elijah's repetition of the fact that he was indeed a man of God shows that this was an important issue. God's reputation was at stake. Was Ahaziah in charge, able to command God's servant to obey him? Or was God in charge, able to command Ahaziah's servants to obey him? As if by sending fire from heaven to consume the soldiers of the king, God was reminding Ahaziah that he was Israel's ruler, and the king should submit to his sovereignty. That's what it's about. It happens three different times. And the third time, they don't get the fire to consume them. But three different times, the men went to Elijah. And that's what it's about. The power play for Ahaziah to realize who's truly in charge, who's in control. And no doubt he finds out it's God. But notice again in verses 11 and 12, I mean, Ahaziah has to learn just like his father. He tried to force Elijah to submit to him. In in verse 11, it changes a little bit from verse 9, where the the second group of 50 to come down, say, they they give a king's order, come down quickly. I mean, he ordered the prophet this time to come down. But Elijah again reminded the captain, undoubtedly for the benefit of those looking on, who report the incident to the king, that he was God's man, and he was in charge. Because the same result came with the first group. The fire from heaven came down, and all the people were consumed. But then there's this third group that comes. we got to look at that just real quickly. Because the third captain, he seems to be, I categorize the third captain as a quick learner. I mean, he's something different among the others. I mean, notice when he comes before Elijah, there's something different about this third captain, and he just he, he, he sees what's happening, and he knows something. The approach has got to be different. And notice in verse 13, when he came to Elijah, the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah. And they treated him, oh man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. I mean, he just 
fell to his knees before the man of God. He recognized him as the man of God. He bows, he falls to his knees. That's much different than any other captain of 50. The others came with the word of the king and demanded for Elijah to come down. This last guy, I mean, he learns the way, he learns the way to approach Elijah. He bows, he falls to his knees. Describes as a man of God. Describes him as a man of God. Yeah, the others actually said, oh, man of God, but Elijah had to prove it to them that he was truly a man of God. Now, the third captain comes and says, okay, I see you. I fall on my knees. I'm bowing to you. I see you as a man of God. He's much different than the previous two captains. He comes and truly sees Elijah as a man of God. Let's stop there for a moment and ask yourself this then. Is that how people recognize me? Do they recognize me as a man or a woman of God? I mean, we just said earlier how people describe us on the outward as tall, short, flashes, skinny, stocky, heavy, freckles, blonde, brunette, whatever. But why can't people describe you as a man, woman, child of God? If they're not, why can't they? We need to be asking ourselves that question this morning. If people are not describing us as a man, woman, child of God, why aren't they? And then why can't they? If they're not. Because it could be then, as we begin to put all this in the neat little package together, maybe they're not seeing God through us. Maybe your actions are not displaying God to them. I mean, it's rhetorical, but it could possibly be if we're not being referred to or thought of as a man, woman, child of God, is it possible because they do not see any part of us that are godlike? I mean, we all know that actions speak louder than words. And truth be known, people are watching you. Your children are watching you. People are watching you. And are defining you more by your actions than any clothes that you're wearing or any car or truck that you're driving. So we ask ourselves, do your actions visibly tell people about the love of Jesus? Do your actions actually tell people we're Christian, that we're a follower of the king, not a king, but the king? And we shouldn't have to audibly tell someone we're Christian. I mean, it's okay to do so. But people should see the evidence about us. That there's something different about this person. They must be a follower of the king. They must be a Christian. It's been several years ago. In fact, it was like two years after I became a Christian. I got invited to go on a deer hunt. I was living in Mississippi at the time, and the deer hunt was going to be in Kentucky. And as I got a chance to come to Kentucky for the deer hunt, it was one of the vendors asked us to come up, and there was a group of guys that came up, and, and one particular guy was, was notably different, and he and I just kind of synced together. His name was Philip, and I, I distinctly remember as we sh I shot a, a doe that particular trip with my bow and arrow, and Philip come up to me, and he said, Kurt, can I skin your deer? I'm thinking, man, this is highly unusual. Someone would offer to skin your deer, and if you're a deer hunter and someone wants to skin your deer for them, yeah, you let them do it. 
So, but I noticed later as he began to skin my beard that it was just Philip's way of ministering. It was just his way of actually, I mean, just letting someone know about Jesus Christ. Because, I mean, he would offer to anyone in the camp to actually skin their deer for them. So, and I was just a regular one of the guys, and he so you shot the deer, and he said, hey, "Can I skin your deer?" But when he began to when he began to stay there with him, he began to tell you about Jesus. It was a great outreach for him to tell people about Jesus, and opportunity presented itself, so he capitalized on it. But as as he began to skin the deer, tell me about Jesus, I was saying, mm-hmm, "Yeah, you're right." Yeah, just completely agree with everything he was saying, and so all of a sudden he just stopped. And he looked at me and he said, well, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, yeah, I accepted Jesus Christ a couple of years ago. I mean, like 39 years old at this particular point. And, but the point is, somebody should see something different about you. I mean, Philip had a wonderful ministry, but he stopped his witnessing because he noticed something different about the person he was witnessing to. He got a sense that the person he was witnessing to had already accepted Jesus Christ. So that goes back to the same question. Can truly someone tell you, can they see something about you that makes them think something's different? This is a man, woman, child of God. Because the point here is our actions should be so consistently God-like, so evident to others, that someone should be able to describe us as not just a receding hairline or blonde or glasses or whatever, but with the love of Jesus Christ in them. People need to see that about us, that we have the love of Jesus Christ about us. In essence, we need to let people see Jesus in you. Let others see Jesus in you. You know, we don't sing that hymn here, but there's an old hymn, let others see Jesus in you. Hey, listen to verse 2. I'm not going to sing it for you, but we'll read it. And you'll be thanking me for that later. But here's the, look at the second verse. It says, your life's a book before their eyes. They're reading it through and through. Does it point into the skies? Do others see Jesus in you? I mean, do people describe you in such a way? Do they see Jesus in you? Now, here's the thing, okay, as you're starting to process this, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, Pastor, right, they got it. I mean, your message is spot on, yeah, but people see Jesus in me. Okay, here's the thing you need to do. Go ask someone you love and you know if people see Jesus in you. Because you might be thinking, yeah, they see Jesus in me, but the person that loves you the most might actually tell you, "Mm, maybe, maybe not. Because we can think highly of ourselves and think we truly have the love of Jesus being displayed to everyone in the world, but your best friend might know the difference. So just ask them to be honest. Then ask them if they would describe you in that way. Or rather, it's just really some outward characteristic about you. Let's close out the remainder of the text. We know it's quite evident in Ahaziah's life that people did not see Jesus in him. The Lord, no one saw the Lord in Ahaziah because he didn't recognize God. But notice as we go back to the text and just put a little bow on it to end all this message and end our series with Elijah, the text ends for his last act of service when the prophet Elijah. We note that the angel of the Lord directs Elijah to be afraid not to go. Verse 15. 
So he rose and went. Verse 16 has said to him, and he now comes in front of Ahaziah like he did with Ahab. It's because you sent messengers to inquire Baal-sephon, the God of Ekron, is because there's no God in Israel. I mean, all the same things, all the same words before. And he tells him, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up. You're going to surely die. So then verse 17 tells us, it ends it all for us. He died according to the word of the Lord. Elijah spoke to him, and Jehoram became the king. And, of course, it talks about how all of his acts are written in the, the book of Chronicles, the kings of Israel. So the ending of the story, if you see now, reveals that Elijah finally stood before the king and gave his message directly to the king as he had done with Ahab. I mean, Elijah delivers the word of God and tells the king, sure enough, king, you're going to take your last breath, and then you're done. He's standing before the king Elijah fearlessly delivered the message to God that he had given him. So it's because of Ahaziah's failure to consult God and his determination to live independently away from God, God was going to dispose of him. Notice how the word of God came to Ahaziah. I mean, it's not God himself standing in front of Ahaziah. It's the word of the Lord coming for Ahaziah, but it's the man of God standing for him. So in some sense, God came before Ahaziah. In some way, God came before Ahaziah. So our last little bit of a message here to receive before we put a little bow and, and just end our time of Elijah is to recognize how God came before Ahaziah, and someday all of us will come before God. And we'll have to give an account of our lives. But one thing used to truly happen before we have to stand before God is that we have to know that we know that we know that our name is written in the book of life. If your name is not written in the book of life when you come before God, it is not going to be a good day. So know for certain that there'll be a day when you stand before the powerful Almighty God, the, the God that brought fire from heaven to consume the 450 prophets of Baal, and now three to, two different times a captain and two captains and a hundred men. That's the most powerful God of the universe, the only God. And we're all going to stand in front of Him, and before we stand in front of Him, know that you know that you know that your name is written in the book of life. Judgment will be so much easier. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this message and how we can learn from Elijah, the example he says before all of us. Lord, today we end our series, of course, with Elijah, but we put a neat little bow on top of it, Lord, to say well, how all of us then need to just recognize your power, your sovereignty, your might. And just recognize, Lord, that there'll be some day we'll have to stand before you. But, Lord, today let's just recognize that we need to be certain that our name is written in the book of life. So I pray for all of us here, Lord, as individuals and even as a church body together, that we would just join together, hands together, Lord, and just recognize that this church, our congregation, our body of believers, Lord, love you. And we want to display Christ in all that we do to anyone we meet. 
and we want to make sure that our names are written in that book of life so we can continue to celebrate and have a great family in heaven like we have here now. So, Lord, let us know today, if we've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, let us do so here today and commit ourselves to you. You love us unconditionally, and we are blessed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so stand with me this morning.